So that being said, we want to hear from him today. We have our last sermon in our series in the book of Leviticus, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And that probably seems odd. It probably seems odd to end your series on the book of Leviticus in a book of the Bible that is not Leviticus. Uh, and perhaps it is odd. Time will tell. But here's, here's why I think it's so helpful for us to land here in the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews, more so than any other book in the New Testament, arguably, takes these elementary lessons that we have been learning and, and tangibly, practically applies them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's like the book of Hebrews, it's like that's what the whole book is about. Taking the law, and in particular the book of Leviticus, and then shining this bright light on how Jesus is what all of it was pointing forward to. So I think this is a very appropriate place for us to land this series, because that's our, that's our desire. Our desire is to see that Jesus is awesome. That's why the book of Leviticus exists. That's what the author to the Hebrews argues, and Jesus made the same argument. Remember, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says, it's about me. So I want to begin, before we even dive into the text, here's where I want to land this series in Leviticus. I want to I make sure that we don't fall into a ditch on either side of the road. So here are two ditches that I want you to, to be wary of and mindful of. On one side of the road, you've got a ditch that says that Leviticus doesn't even matter, which is maybe how some of us felt as we came into this series. Leviticus is the book of the Bible that I dread when I'm doing my reading plan. It's the book of the Bible that makes me feel awkward and uncomfortable, and so I, I avoid it. Well, no, you can't do that, because the Apostle Paul said, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so we, we see this is valuable. That's why we spent 10 weeks studying this book. It's valuable. We need it. And yet there's a ditch on the other side of the road. And that is a ditch that becomes so inf infatuated with the law that you want to return to the law. You want to return to the festivals, to the ceremonies, to the sacrifices. You want to get back in. And listen, that is a very real temptation that people face. But if that's where, if that's where your heart takes you after you've read Leviticus, then you're reading it wrong. Right? That is not what Leviticus is for. This issue comes up in the church all the time. It happened in the early church. It happens in the church today. So in the early church, we've got a whole letter devoted to this ditch. The book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Galatia. And in Galatia, there was a group called the Judaizers. And what they were teaching to the, these new young Christians is they were saying, if you want to be truly saved, then you need Jesus plus the law. So you need to trust in Jesus, but also observe all of the ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices. And the Apostle Paul wrote to them and he said, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But, he says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So Paul says the law was our guardian, so incredibly helpful, until Christ came and he has come. So in spite of what the clever teachers are teaching you in Galatia, don't go back. There's something new, glorious, a fulfillment that has arrived. And so I want to give you this clear warning as we wrap up this series. 
if you walk out of this series saying, you know what, I think we should go back and institute these festivals that we learned about, you've missed it. You've missed it. And there is that, that false teaching that tries to pull people in to like a, and they call it a purer Christianity. And so here, you'd say, well, who would, who would fall into that trap? Well, here's the kind of, in general, the kind of people that get pulled into that. If you find yourself kind of bored with the gospel, like I already, I've already figured all this out. I want something new. Then this is a very real temptation. You know, now we found something, something new and secret. We're going to return to a purer form of the faith. It'll, it'll pull you in. Or if you're the kind of person who likes to feel like I'm the one who has figured it out, then this is going to, it's going to pull you in. You got to resist that. And when it pulls you in, it tends to produce people who, who look down their noses at those who don't follow the food laws of the Old Testament and who look down their noses at those who don't follow the festivals and who look down their noses at, at those who don't follow the Sabbath in spite of the fact that the Apostle Paul clearly said, listen, this is the Apostle Paul, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That, that needs to be our heart cry coming out of it. The shadow was good. The shadow was helpful. You should come out of this series saying, wow, the law is so good. And it so perfectly fulfilled its purpose, which was preparing us to see and delight in Christ. Preparing us to understand who we are and who God is and how we need a Savior. The law is good and Jesus is better. The law is good, and Jesus is better. That should be our heart cry coming out of this series, which is why we're landing in the book of Hebrews. Because you've heard me say it before, that could be the subtitle for the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He points to the, the sacrifices. Jesus is better. He points to the priesthood. Jesus is better. He points to the ceremonies. Jesus is better. The Sabbath. Jesus is better. Read the book of Hebrews in light of all that we've learned, and you'll see how he picks up all of these elementary lessons, and he lands them gloriously on Christ. Because you understand this, you are better positioned to worship and delight in Christ. That's what I want to make sure we see as we close the page on this series. So with that in mind, we're going to zoom in on one text in particular, we could have done a case study. We could have taken every single allusion in the book of Hebrews and we could have studied them as a survey. But what I'd like to do instead is just zoom in on one passage as a, as a case study, if you will, of how our understanding of the law now is going to help us to, to better worship and understand what Christ has done. So to that end, look with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So as I said, what we find in this amazing passage is a case study of how our understanding of the law fuels our worship of Christ. So let's study this text and ask this last question. How does the law prepare us to see and to savor Jesus? Well, here, it's right on the surface. Let's just pull these out. You've probably already seen these, but let's pull them out and dive deep into them. First of all, it prepares us to see that he is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Oh, thank you, sir. The author to the Hebrews tells us that we have confidence now to enter into the holy places. So let's pause. Think back to what we just read. I would assume if you are a Christian that you vaguely understood the themes that he was presenting. But I also assume that now, having spent 10 weeks studying the book of Leviticus, we have a greater appreciation of what he's unpacking. He uses some key words, doesn't he? He uses the word blood. Something about blood that allows us to enter the holy places. And these holy places, there's, there's something about a curtain that separates us. Does that sound familiar? Does that draw your attention to anything? It makes me think of the Day of Atonement, doesn't it? The Day of Atonement was the one day when God's people and one person, the high priest, could enter into the holy place, the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies, you remember, had the Ark of the Covenant. It was the footstool of God. It was the place where God's glory tangibly dwelt with his people. And it was separated by what? A curtain. That curtain existed to communicate that God is holy and you are not. And you cannot approach his presence willy-nilly. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, after the shedding of blood for his sin and the shedding of blood for the sins of his people, once a year he could enter into the Holy of Holies. And briefly to be in the presence of God. So what he, the author of the Hebrews here is saying, you remember that ceremony? You remember all of that? That one man entering once a year and, and briefly after all the sacrifices to be in the presence of God? He says, look at that and now realize that we, all of us, get to approach into the presence of God beyond the curtain at any time, as often as we want, and we can stay, and we can linger. Why? Because of the blood. Jesus, there is blood that has been shed now that is different than the blood that was shed previously. So therefore, there is an entrance into the presence of God, which is different from what we experienced previously. Think back to that Old Testament ceremony. I mean, so let's, let's really think about it. Why was it that the high priest was only allowed to enter briefly? All of the sacrifices, everything that he did before the entrance was prescribed by God, right? So he followed God's instructions to a T. So why then couldn't he stay in the presence of God for as long as he liked? Why is it that it was limited? Well, look back in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. I want you to scroll your eyes all the way down to verse 1. He writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He's saying something very important there. He's saying the law, it was a shadow. It was never meant to be the final plan. It was always supposed to be something that was preparing you to recognize the final plan. The, the law couldn't make him perfect. That's why he couldn't stay in the presence of God. Because those sacrifices, that sacrifice of an animal, did not actually make him perfect. What was it? It was a shadow of something that was coming. But there was a, 
a deficiency that was baked right into the cake of the sacrificial system. Look ahead in chapter 10 all the way to verse 4. He highlights this deficiency. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. This deficiency was baked in. So imagine for a second that you're an Israelite worshiper and you're going home after making your sin offering and you've sacrificed this animal and you're walking away and you've got the blood of this animal is on your robes and you're thinking a few things, I would imagine. First of all, you're thinking, this is amazing that God would forgive me, a sinner. What right do I have to have a relationship with God? And yet here I am forgiven. Praise God. You're thinking that, I'm sure. But I would imagine the Israelite worshiper is also wondering, yet yeah, why did this work? Why is it that, that that ox, that goat, that turtle dove, why is it that the death of that animal was enough to satisfy God's judgment against my sin? I don't know. He'd walk home a little bit perplexed because built into the sacrificial system, there was this deficiency. It didn't quite make sense. Well, why is it that that was effective? Why is it that God forgave those worshipers? Is it because the blood of a a turtle dove was enough to satisfy him? No, it's because they were taking this step of faith, trusting in God's provision. But those sacrifices were always a shadow preparing us to recognize the true sacrifice that God would provide. The sacrifice of his son. The only sacrifice that could actually take away our sin. So this whole sacrificial system was presented, was given by God to prepare us to hear, as John the Baptist proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial system was designed so that that would make sense to us. It was instituted so that we would understand when Jesus sat down at the Passover stable and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also we take the cup after supper saying, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The whole repetitive year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice system was ordained by God to prepare us to marvel at Jesus' words that he cried from the cross when he said, it is finished. All of the repetition, all the repetition, no, it's finished. Matthew writes, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Think, think about that curtain for a moment. I wonder if you've ever really thought about this. Who designed the curtain? Who is the one who said, put a curtain here? It was God, right? God designed this curtain. He, he commanded them. He said, put this curtain in place. It's going to remind you that I'm holy and that you're not and that we are separated. God designed this curtain. But here's the thing. When God told them to build that curtain, it was always part of his design to tear that curtain in two. That curtain was instituted for the purpose of ripping in half when Christ declared it is finished. Why? Because God knew that we were going to need a visible, tangible evidence that the separation between us and God is no more. So God said to the Old Testament, the Israelites, he said, build this curtain, knowing, and I'm going to rip it in half, and it's going to be glorious. I'm going to make a way for you to be with me. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the way to the Father. So the author of the Hebrews says, you've got to see that here. And then he turns to the second thing that we need to see. 
So, so see that he is the sacrifice. See also that he is the high priest. In the same way that there was a deficiency baked into the cake of the sacrificial system, there was also a deficiency baked into the cake of the priesthood. So here I want to invite you to flip back to chapter 7 of Hebrews. And we're going to read verses 23 to 28. Here he is. He's describing the priesthood. And he's going to highlight some of those deficiencies that prepare us to see how amazing Christ is. He says, the former priests, this is verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So do you see the two deficiencies that he highlights here? First of all, he says that the high priests were physically weak. Meaning, you might have a great high priest, but the problem is that that great high priest dies. And so you've got a multitude of priests working their way through because they're physically weak. And then he says, they're also spiritually weak. They sinned, every one of them. Even the best high priest the Israelites had, he, he was a sinner. Therefore, the high priest had to spend time making sacrifices year after year for their own sins. The priesthood was made up of fragile, sinful men. But not anymore, he says. Now there is one high priest in the presence of the Father who will never be replaced. One high priest who will never die, who will never take a sick day, who will never take a leave of absence, who will never need to waste a second making sacrifices for his own sin because he's perfect in every respect. There's no weakness in him. He's perfect forever. Christian, Jesus is your high priest. And that is very good news because of what we know about the high priest. So, let me just highlight two things we learned as we studied through Leviticus. First of all, the high priest represented his people. Do you remember he wore a, this ephod like a breastplate and it had the 12 stones on it? And those precious stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel? Why did he wear that? He wore that as a visible demonstration that when he went before God, he represented his people. Well, in the same way, we have a high priest who represents us. In Hebrews chapter 4, 15, he says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He says, in the same way, Christian, you have a high priest who represents you. Jesus has clothed himself in human flesh. He's, he stepped into our frailty. He felt our temptation. He felt our weakness. And he's overcome. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he knows us. He knows us. He represents us. He identifies with us, for us. And he prays for us. That's the second thing we see. That was the job of the high priest, to pray for his people, to go before the throne of grace and to intercede on behalf of those that he loved. Well, in Romans 8, verse 34, the apostle Paul tells us, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, 
I don't know if you've thought about this, but you should know, Jesus Christ prays for you. Jesus is praying for you. Did you know that? Right now, at this very moment, seated at the right for Levi, for Eddie, for all of us. That's remarkable. I, every once in a while, somebody will share with me that they are praying for me, lifting up my family to the Lord, and I'm always in awe that they would take their time and they would think of me and lift up my family to the Lord. That, it's humbling. It's amazing. Well, be amazed by this. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Isn't that awesome? See, once a year, the Israelites marveled as a man, a weak, sinful priest, entered into the presence of God for them. They watched with wonder and joy and reverence as their mediator entered into the Holy of Holies on their behalf. How much more then should we look with wonder and joy and reverence and awe at our great priest who is at the right hand of the Father forever praying for us? Well, see, the apostle of the Hebrews picks these up and he says, when you understand this, oh, it changes you. And what, where we're going to land today is the way that it should change us. So as we conclude, I want to pull out three applications. Because I said, we don't want to study the law and then fall in a ditch to say, oh, well, I, therefore we don't need Leviticus. Or therefore we need to return to Leviticus. He says, no, in light of all that you've seen, here's how you should respond. Here's the first response. You should approach. When you see that Christ is your sacrifice and your high priest, that's the first response. Approach. Look again at verse 22 of, tap, 22 of chapter 10. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If the Israelite could walk away from his sacrifice of a ram with that blood sprinkled on his clothes, if he could walk away assured of his forgiveness, then how much more can we walk away from the cross and believe that we have been forgiven and cleansed? The Lamb of God, the eternal son, the lion of Judah, the God-man, Jesus Christ, graciously, purposefully, marvelously surrendered his life as a substitute for yours. His perfect, sinless, atoning blood was shed for your sin, Christian. And he declared, it is finished. Beautiful words, right? It is finished. Not it is started. Not it is, not it is well underway. He says, it is finished. Every time you stand at a distance feeling like you're too dirty to be cleansed by God, feeling like you're too sinful to be forgiven by God, what you're saying in your heart is you're saying, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, Jesus, it is not finished. I, I've got a mess in my life, Jesus, that is too, that is too far gone for, for your healing. I've, I've done things, Jesus, that are too wicked for your blood to wash over. I've got a, I've got a mess in my life, Jesus, that is going to require more than your sacrifice. I'm going to have to put in some elbow grease, Jesus. I'm going to need to sort this out before I can approach the Father. Whenever we, whenever we distance ourselves from God, that is what we're proclaiming in our hearts. Christian, are you standing at a distance? In your prayer life, in your worship life? It's in your thoughts. Do you feel like God is just so far away? Listen, did Jesus Christ die on the cross for you? Then you're forgiven. You are forgiven. Did Jesus Christ shed his perfect blood for your sin? Then you are redeemed. 
did Jesus Christ declare that it is finished? Then I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the accuser says. I don't care what your own feelings say. It is finished. It is finished. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the apostle of the Hebrews says, and I would, I would just come alongside and say, let us draw near. What would hold us back? It's completed. Let's draw near. Not feebly, not fearfully, but with a full assurance of faith. See, I fear that too many of us draw near to God meekly, as if it, it was dependent upon our own righteousness. If it was dependent upon my own righteousness, I would, I would crawl to the Lord. It, it, I wouldn't approach with any kind of confidence if it was dependent on my righteousness, but it's not. My approach to God is dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus, and His righteousness is perfect. I've got a ticket that can get me right to the Father. It gets me right to the front row. It's a backstage pass. It's mine. Christ purchased it for me. So approach, he says. Approach him with boldness in your prayer life. Plead with him. Bring all of your cares and concerns and anxieties and cast them upon him because he loves you. Come before him in worship and know that he is pleased as his people gather in faith and, and delight in him. Approach him, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of his beloved son. Do you pray that way? Do you worship that way? Do you live each and every day that way? I, I'll tell you, as I was writing this, I confess, this is an area in my faith where I really struggle. I don't think this is a switch that you flick as a Christian and then, okay, where I've, I figured that out. Now I don't need to think about that again. I think this is an every single morning step of faith. There are days where I, I'll be honest, days this weekend, you just have a lousy, lousy sleep. You wake up exhausted. You read your Bible. It feels like your brain never really activated. You, your, your time in devotion is, it, is nothing. And then you walk around through the day and you feel like God's a little bit further away because he probably wasn't super satisfied with my devotions. That, those thoughts creep into my head all the time. And your prayer life just shifts just a little bit that day. And your understanding of God and the way that he delights in you shifts a little bit that day. Why? Because you've bought the lie that your approach to God depends on you and your righteousness. And that is a lie. Every day we need to wake up and remember, God loves me because Jesus is enough. God forgives me because Jesus has paid for it. And so I'm going to draw near. The, the ticket has been purchased, and it was purchased at a great cost. So I'm going to grab hold of that ticket each day, and I'm going to come before my Father with boldness. And then the text says, how do we respond? Seeing that he is our sacrifice, seeing that he is our great high priest, we need to remain. Look again at verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, it's so important that you have this right understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Because sometimes life is so incredibly hard. And sometimes you're going to find yourself inclined to waver. You're going to be inclined to waver because of the outside circumstances. You're going to be inclined to waver because of your own heart and the things that you see inside of it. Right now we've got brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. On Thursday night we gathered in this field and we prayed for them. You had better believe that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now are feeling a, a strong temptation to waver. Wondering if they're going to survive this month. Wondering if their children are going to survive this month. Wondering, is Jesus worth it? Does our text speak into their circumstances? 
Is this just mere theological theory or, or does understanding that Christ is our sacrifice and that he is our high priest, does that speak into very real circumstances Christians are facing in the world? Answer, it sure does. What does this understanding speak into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? It speaks hope. It speaks hope. It says, Christian, God has got a hold on you. And no matter what happens in the government or in your circumstances or the trials that you face, no matter what happens, you can hold on to that. You don't need to waver. After Jesus declared, it is finished, the Father declared, it is accepted. Three days later, he stepped out of that tomb. And as he stepped back out into the light, it was this glorious display from the Father that that sacrifice was enough, that it is accomplished, that it is completed, that all the promises of God have been unlocked in Christ. And he's not the only one that stepped out of a tomb that day. This is a passage we often fly by. But in Matthew's gospel, we read, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. Listen. And the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. How many times have you skimmed over those verses and thought, what on earth is this about? Let me tell you what it's about. When those tombs opened up and those saints stepped out God tangibly and powerfully declared that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Everlasting life, a hope and a future, a new heaven and a new earth, resurrection hope, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So no trial or circumstance can unseat that hope because it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. No affliction can ultimately unseat us because we have a great high priest and he's praying for us even now and he's praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Therefore, in view of that great sacrifice that was sufficient and that great high priest who never takes a rest, we can stand. We can hold fast. And finally, in light of all that we've seen, seeing that he is the sacrifice, that he is the high priest, we need to encourage. Look again at verses 24 to 25. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, thus far, everything we've discussed has been very personal. We've talked about our own personal feelings, our own personal walk with God. And that's all very important. But here we need to see something that is equally important, which is that we are a community. And so actually your understanding of Christ and his work doesn't just matter for your own heart. It matters for the hearts of everybody around you. Let me be really practical here. More often than not, when a person is struggling, what they need more than anything else is to have the truth of the gospel applied to their particular hurt. And... Not to overgeneralize here, but it is true. You feel like God doesn't love you? Let me point you to the cross where he showed his great love for us. You feel like you're too far gone? Let let me remind you that the blood of Jesus is powerful to wash away every sin. You feel like God doesn't hear your prayers? Well, first of all, he does. And second of all, Jesus is your high priest and he's praying for you right now. So even if God didn't hear your prayers, which by the way, he does, but even if he didn't, he hears Jesus' prayers for you. Do you feel like a failure as a parent? A failure as a husband, a failure as a business owner, a failure as a Christian. 
Behold the cross of Christ where the Son of God bled and died so that failures could be redeemed and the hopeless could have a bright hope and a future. Now, obviously, you'd want to say more than that and you'd want to say it with appropriate sensitivity and you'd want to apply it practically and particularly and carefully. But the point is this. The more that you see and savor Christ, the more that you understand how he's fulfilled the law, and unlock the blessings of God for his people. The more that you comprehend of his death in our place and his intercession on our behalf, the more you'll be able to apply the gospel medicine to your weary brothers and sisters. And let me tell you this as we come to a close. We need more medics in the church. People are hurting. The church is a hospital for sick people, so we expect to see hurting people here. But to use hospital terms, we need as many people as possible who are equipped with the medicine of the gospel and who are efficient in their ability to apply it to the hurting people around them. Brothers and sisters, you need to get this pressed deep into your heart because you need to be able to press this deep into the heart of others. So gather, stir each other up, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let the plight of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan remind us that our earthly comforts can be stripped away at a moment's notice. We don't choose when the hard days will come. They just come, and they will come. Therefore, it's so crucial that each and every one of us roots our hope in Christ, in his life, in his death in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his mediation on our behalf. If we see and savor and delight in him, then we will stand. We'll draw near. We'll be able to help others to do the same. Because he is the sacrifice for our sin. And he is our great high priest. And he is the fulfillment of the law. And he is our life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come to you today in prayer. Lord, thank you even for this, the stillness of this moment. We thank you that you hear us today. You hear me, not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And we lift up our hearts together, trusting that, God, you hear us and you are pleased with us because of your son. God, and that changes everything. Lord, I pray against a spirit of legalism that rises up in our hearts. I pray against it, that, that thing inside of us that tells us that if, if our attendance isn't the way it should be and our devotions aren't the way that they should be, that you're, you're somehow farther away. God, I just I pray that you would help us to rest in what you've accomplished for us. And I pray that all of our obedience, God, would flow out of that, that it would be a response to this amazing grace that we've received and not some dutiful burdensome attempt to try to please an angry God that's far from us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a right understanding. God, I pray that you'd protect us from the, the ways of the evil one. Lord, I just, I talked about those warnings off the top and those are very real, Lord. We don't want to discard your word and we also, Lord, don't want to be pulled into this legalistic trap. Lord, we don't want the enemy playing on our pride. Or, and Lord, just trying to pull us in, making us discontent. Lord, help us to rest in this simple, amazing, glorious gospel. Lord, I pray that for us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to have the kinds of relationships where we can speak gospel truth into each other's lives. Lord, I, I feel like some of us have maybe put up some walls in our life. We got hurts that we don't want to show anyone, rooms that we don't want to invite anyone into. 
And, and Lord, we need the gospel applied. And, and who better to apply it than our brothers and sisters in Christ who know us and who love us? So God, would you help us to put our walls down? Lord, would you help us to be faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and to encourage one another? Lord, all the more as the day draws near, Lord, help us to lean into you no matter what may come. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?